Well, hello there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios. I am the host of this show. We spend our time amplifying and celebrating the work and contributions of women in the healthcare and health IT space. And I like to talk about how healthcare is like a 30,000 piece puzzle. I started it saying it's a 500 piece puzzle or it's a 100 piece puzzle or it's a 3,000 piece puzzle, but it's actually, it just keeps growing and gets more and more complicated. And so the idea behind this show is to really talk to women or femme-identifying people who have a piece of the health IT puzzle and so can hopefully help us understand the bigger picture. And so I would love to get to know you a little bit better. Today we have a very special guest and we are coming to you from the floor of HIMSS at the GE Healthcare booth. So if you wouldn't mind, please taking a moment to introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Elizabeth Berge. I'm the president and CEO of Quantum Imaging, which is a private practice radiology group in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, about 77 radiologists, and we provide services to 14 different hospitals and multiple imaging centers. Can you tell me a little bit more about your journey? Sure. So I'm a pediatric radiologist by training, and I started in academic radiology for about five years, and then I transitioned to private practice and started with being involved in the governance, and I've been president and CEO for 14 years. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Did you know what you wanted to do when you were 10 years old? Did you have any concept of that you would be where you are right now? So when I was 10, I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau, so not exactly. <laughs> when did that change? When I was 13, I was playing flashlight tag in the yard and did a, a hook slide. I was actually the the first uh, female-bodied person to play class major Little League Baseball in 1974. So so I was practicing my hook slide in the yard, and I slid over a spike and ripped my knee open. And I was awake because I had just eaten dinner, so they couldn't put me to sleep to take care of my intraarticular tear. So I was awake during the whole surgery and thought it was pretty cool. And from that on, I decided I was going to be a doctor. How long did that surgery take? I can't imagine being awake for that. So I'm not really 100% sure because A, I was 13 and B, I was on drugs, you know, yeah. They, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I probably an hour and a half or so. And from there you were convinced this is the direction I wanted. Uh, did you want to, yeah, tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, I was always, I was always a math and science kind of kid, you know, although I did read a lot, you know, I was already breaking gender barriers by that time. And I thought, yeah, this looks like, you know, I knew it was a stable income. And, and to be honest, like, I didn't want to ever have to depend on a man. And so, you know, I did what I needed to do to be independent. I'm happily married for 32 years, but as so it turns out. But I never wanted that to be like, you know, that wasn't who I was. And was that something that you were taught or is that something that was inherent? Oh, to no, you? that was totally what I inside myself. I okay. was not taught that. I'm, I'm way too old to be taught that. I mean, I feel really fortunate. My mom really was a big influence in my life. I was raised by a single parent and she was kind of had a similar thought line. She's just like from the age of eight, she's like, you need to be self-sufficient. Right. It's really important that you are the one who's driving your future. So it's yeah. incredible to hear that that came from within. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been training my, I have two daughters and I've been training them too. Like, and they're very independent now and I'm very proud of them. 
So can you tell me a little bit how you came, became the president of your organization and a little bit about that that specific journey? Sure. So radiology actually has one of the fewest or the lowest percentage of women in, out of all specialties. So I was in the minority right from the beginning. And I'm not like a, you know, flower in the corner. So when I saw things that I thought weren't right for various reasons, I would speak up respectfully, but, you know, I wasn't quiet about it and, and offered solutions. And I was actually only part-time at the time. I, I was raising my three children, and I enjoyed being a mother during that time period very much. Um, and then when they went to kindergarten, I said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of bored now, so I might as well go full-time. And I, so I started working full-time, and, and then all of a sudden my voice started, I was legitimate in their eyes. And so some of my solutions were seen as valuable, and they were being implement, implemented. And then shortly thereafter, they were asking me to be on the board or be the director of this or the chairman of that or... Pretty soon I was, pre like a couple years later, I was president. And do you still find yourself as being one of the only women in the room? So frequently, yes. Absolutely, 100%. Now, for the first year, I'm very happy to say we have our board of directors, which is total seven. We have three female directors. But it was very hard for even me to convince women to run. They were reluctant because I do think, I honestly believe that women have more obligations at home and, you know, we have that on top of everything else. And even, and many of them were also married to other physicians and it seemed to default to them to, to take care of the kids. And, and I, I don't think that's right. My, my husband was very involved and, and allowed me to grow, but I'm not sure that that's the way it is for most women. So, Was there anything in particular that helped convince those women to say yes or made it easier for them to say yes? Yeah, so they would come, would come to me and say, I have this problem or I don't like the way this is. And I'm, I'm like, you're 100% right. Like, help me. Like, join up. Like, let's go. Let's fix this problem. I need your help. And so sometimes they would do that from, from the periphery. But I said, you know, you can make the biggest impact because our board of directors has a lot of operational control that you can have immediate impact with me on on our side. So, and, and they, these are not like gender specific issues. These are just issues in radiology, but they had ideas and I didn't think they were being, they're a resource that wasn't completely exploited. I'm curious about any advice that you might have for women who find themselves as the only or at a table that they are maybe the only one represented. Yeah. And if you have, you know, years of experience speaking up when you might feel uncomfortable, like how do people overcome that challenge of of maybe trusting their voice or trusting that right. their voice matters? Right. So it is harder. There is no lie. I mean, I have to work harder to have credibility at that table. There is no question in my mind. That it's, that it's harder for me. I come in overly prepared. I mean, our solutions are data-driven. I come in with a handful of novel data that they don't have to prove my point. It irritates me that I have to do that, to be honest, that they don't just take what I have to say at face value like they do with the men in the room. But I, I'm also a spreader, and I'm like, you, I got space. Like, you look up, you know. <laughs> and I'm not going to, like, sit there and be like all... So, I mean, that's one of the things is I demand, and I, and I will be respectful, but I, I make sure my voice is heard and I have the data to back up whatever point I'm trying to make. And has there ever been a time that that has backfired or? Very, most men, I mean, most men that I have to deal with in these environments, they're good guys. I mean, they just don't know. Like, they're just so used to it. They've been enculturated by this. You know, they have this privilege. And when I draw their attention to them, not by saying it, but by acting the way I act, I think 
I think that, that they have a shift. I mean, I can kind of see them change the way they look at me, and they're actually looking me in the eye now. They're actually, I can see them thinking about what I'm saying. It, 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 I can see the transition happen with most men. I mean, there's a few like that don't like me because I'm female for no other reason, and those I have to figure out how to go around. <laughs> I'm curious also about advice you would actually have for men, because I know, we hear that a lot, that it's like, it's not all men. Men, are, I'm a good guy. I have a wife and daughters and et cetera. But like, they still sometimes participate in the culture of ignoring what the value that women are bringing to the table. What do you wish or how would you advise men who want to do better and perhaps don't know how? So I think that before they go into a meeting, they have to think, I am not, I'm, I have no preconceived ideas. I I have nothing in my head. I'm going to be conscious of the fact that I may have this enculturated bias. And when I, and I'm going to make a specific effort to be open and listen closely. That's, it's listening, right? I mean, that's really what it is. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because this is a podcast and I feel like a lot of my job is active listening. And when I end up hearing from some of the listeners what they will, and it's often men who will say, I've learned so much from, you know, listening to the women on your show. And I'm like, well, I'm doing the job of active listening for you so that, so that you don't actually, I'm creating that space for that to happen. And so it's almost like, it's a big lesson of asking somebody just to listen, right? Like it's it's doing less talking, yeah. <laughs> more well, listening. I think they're more likely to interrupt us too. And again, I don't think they're conscious of that. And they interrupt each other too. So it's not just, you know, and so I think you have to, you, you have to like, pull up your pants and say, excuse me, I wasn't quite finished. Could I finish that point? Or, you know, politely make sure that you are heard and that they don't... They, they talk over top of each other. I played with boys my whole life, so I'm used to the, I'm used to like making sure I have space and I'm heard. It's, I'm a little bit different um, because I did grow up playing with boys, and so I, you know, if you just have to keep shouldering in and that, because that's their world, like that's how they grew up, and and they're used to that kind of and it's, and to boys that's not offensive. So fair. Okay, so I want to transition to your area of expertise in radiology. If you wanted to, there's something in here about workload, workload orchestration, yeah. and that doesn't mean much to me. So can you help me understand, you know, the piece of that particular puzzle and what sure. you do? So as a fairly large, complex radiology group, we had a problem of how do we get the right images to the right radiologists and fit them in so that the turnaround times are optimized. And the conventional way was there was a list, right? And so you could filter that list in different ways and, and you could end up with some small little, this is my world today, or you could have a bunch of people reading off of a bigger world. And that had a lot of inefficiencies associated with it from cherry picking, which means like, I call it, it's in two flavors. One is the active cherry picker. I take whatever, I don't care what the rules are, I'm just picking whatever case I wanna read. You know, and, and people can see that that's happening, and so the people following the rules are dissatisfied by that. And then the other one's a passive one. I'm on this list. I'm supposed to be reading from this list. There's other people. I don't like that case at the top. I'm going to find something else to do until that case disappears. And we know that they, a lot of them just sit there because when that list that case goes off, the next three cases go like flying off. So that's another dissatisfier for the people that are following the rules. And it's a big productivity sink, right? Because while they're sitting there, they're not reading cases. For somebody who, okay, so how many cases would you anticipate a radiologist to be reviewing on any given day? What's realistic? So somewhere 
between, depending on what the case mix is, like what their specialty is, somewhere between, in our world, 65 to 200. Okay. You know, there's certain people who read plain films or screening mammography that, that ratchet the higher numbers. And if they're MR heavy, they might be the lower or PET scans. And what kind of technology supports them in helping them do that more efficiently, you know, with better? So, yeah, so we wrote a brain that the RVU is most productivity and radiologist and image management is based on, that CMS pays us on, and it's a terrible metric. It does not predict how long anything's going to take to do. We actually did a normalized evaluation of the RVU and found out a very poor correlation, and somebody else did that too with much little, uh, with uh, fewer cases uh-huh. and smaller data set. So we went to time as a metric. So we predict the time that it's going to take any image to, to be read, uh, the, the interpretation time, and then when their turnaround time is required. And then we have a brain that looks at everybody's skill sets and what's in the workload and who's available to do it and how many you know how much time in the stats there are. And we, we slide images around through this brain and nobody picks off any more lists. So they don't have any, even the guys trying to follow, like imagine you got this giant book of workflow guidelines. If you're this person, read off of this list, except when this and, or, or that. And so it's, you know, they're, even the guys trying to follow the, right, the rules are kind of like, I don't know what to read. And so they take time and anxiety picking the next case. Because they also, some of them don't want to be thought of as cherry pickers. So they're worried about that too. So now they just sit there, they read a case, they sign it, the next case automatically pops up. And, you know, there was a little bit of change management till they trusted it, you know, a few weeks. But most of them say it's a great satisfier. So I had the opportunity to take a demo of that, and it looked like it kind of prevents from cherry picking by just picking what you're going right. to be looking at automatically. Yep, yep. And then based on the weight that the list is given, you know, you have maybe a thousand cases in the list and it has different weights and depending on, you know, yep. how important it is, right. they go to the right, top. Right, right. It, it prioritizes them based on, you know, patient acuity, things like that. And then it, it's improved our turnaround times like 20% plus and it increased our productivity. We managed our productivity, I think, much better than the average group before this. And we had a tool that, that does that as well. And we still saw a 6% improvement in daytime productivity and 21% in off hours and weekends. So huge improvement in productivity. I think a lot of that was the not no more ch- passive cherry picking and also just the time that it took to pick the case. So, I, you know, we're, we're, it's a big satisfier. Is there anything more that you can tell me just specifically about? Well, actually, what I want to know is... If you could recommend what CMS would actually be measuring, if it's not RVU, what would it be? It should be a combination of the time. That should be the most important thing. And then, you know, maybe some consideration of the malpractice risk uh, associated with any costs associated. Like some of the scans, like PET scans are horribly undervalued. Not only do they take forever to interpret, they're extremely, like, emotionally taxing because they're all cancer patients. You know, so you, you, you actually, I mean, as a radiologist, you think we don't put a face to it. Our mind somehow, like, there's a person attached to that scan, and if we're reading a PET scan and it's a bad outcome, like, it bothers us, right? So, so there's that kind of anxiety associated with it, and we need a special piece of equipment that we have to pay more to read it. And so there's all these costs associated that aren't recognized by CMS. Okay, so is there an opportunity to suggest or present comments or have them somehow reevaluate how they do that? So, I mean, 
I guess. But when anything has to do with the government, like I got better things to do because I can, I, I have a normalized data set right now. I could tell them every CPT code. First of all, all plain film CPT codes are undervalued by 100%. And if I did that, it wouldn't change how much we get paid. It would just switch it around. I mean, that might feel better because it would be more accurate, but it's not like it would have a big benefit to my bottom line. So I'm not sure that I would take the angst to do it. If somebody came to me, I certainly would supply them with our normalized data for their consideration. But nobody's knocking at my door for that. So <laughs> We have an opportunity to take as audience questions, which is not something that is typical for the Hit Like a Girl podcast. So I'd like to open it up to any listeners here. If there's anybody who has a question for our guest, now would be a good time. Uh, we have a mic. Dr. Berge, how did you decide on radiology as your specialty? So that was interesting. So I was always very good with my hands, so I, I liked the surgical subspecialties, and I, I seriously considered orthopedic, pediatric orthopedic surgery. I always knew I was going to go into peds. My kids are, I just, you know, I just felt like I would have a bigger impact, and I like kids, and I'm a, a soccer coach, and I've had three of them, you know, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at pediatric subspecialties, and I, I really seriously considered orthopedic surgery, but to be honest, back in the day, I thought I was going to be an I did train to be an interventional radiologist, and I so that was my hands. And they had they had very high pay, and hours were reasonable back in the day because this was this was like right before PACs came in, right? So you know the radiologists were out of the department at 4:45. I mean, when I trained at the Cleveland Clinic, right before they put the ER, they had no ER when I started in 1992 at the Cleveland Clinic. So we worked till five, and then the department cleared out. So that was a consideration for me. I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit. Any other questions? If not, thank you very much sure. for your time. Thank you for your insights. I very much appreciate it. If people want to connect with you, follow you, your work, where would you direct them? Well, I mean, I'm here, so anybody here. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do have a LinkedIn thing, so you can okay. that. All right. Well, this is a podcast. I'll share that information in our show notes. All right. So great. thank you very much. Sure. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.